On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. As we look at our state and nation, I am saddened by the speed uh, with which we're headed toward a total collapse because Uh, As a nation and a state, we are rotten to the core. We are corrupt and rotten. And it was Abraham Lincoln that said during his presidency that, and I'm going to paraphrase because I don't remember it exactly, that our nation would never fall from being conquered by a foreign army, but rather we we would collapse from within. And that's exactly what we're seeing. We're we're seeing a, a rotten, corrupt society headed toward destruction. And I suppose in in one sense that shouldn't surprise us because we live in a world in which everything is passing away. Nations, kingdoms, empires, cities, institutions, families, even buildings, they're all subject to change and corruption. Because you see, one universal law prevails. All created things decay and pass away. And there's, there's something sad and almost depressing in this. I mean, isn't there anything that will last and stand the test of time? Isn't there anything that will endure? Isn't there anything which will continue forever? And immediately my mind goes to the verse, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. I mean, that's the first thing that comes to my mind in asking those questions. But the word of God is not something created. It's the living, eternal word of the eternal God. We're speaking of things created, so back to the questions. Isn't there anything that will last and stand the test of time? Anything that will endure? Anything which will continue forever? We'll be finding the answer to these questions in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. If you would please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And I'm going to ask you to stand as I read this single verse, which is our text for the morning wanted to take one more Sunday before we jump back into Ephesians, and this is what was on my heart. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. If you're not familiar with the Bible, perhaps you're using a Bible given to you by the usher. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. And go to chapter 16, verse 18, and here's what we read. Jesus is speaking, and he says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. In this verse, Jesus speaks of something that will continue forever and not pass away. I mean, there is one created thing that is an exception to the universal law of decay. There is one thing that will never perish and pass away, and that is the church which is built upon the rock of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And in this verse, Jesus declares that on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And there are five things in this verse that we can learn about the church. First of all, number one, it's a building. First of all, we notice in the verse that we have a building mentioned. The Lord Jesus speaks of my church, and he said, I will build my church. But the church that Jesus speaks about is not a material building. It's not a structure made of wood, brick, stone, or marble. The church that that Jesus speaks about is not a particular visible church. In other words, it's not the Baptist or the Presbyterians or the Methodist or the non-denominational churches like Calvary Bible Church. The church Jesus speaks about here is not much in the eyes of men, but it's of great importance in the eyes of God. The church spoken of in this verse is not a building. Rather, it's made up of all true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. It includes all who by grace have turned to Christ, putting their faith and trust in Him alone for salvation, thus becoming a new creation in Christ. The church is made up of all who have received God's grace, all who have been washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus, all who have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, all who have been born again by the Spirit of God. All those people out of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people make up the church that Jesus is speaking about here in our text. This is the true church, the body of Christ, the the flock of Christ. This is the bride, the lamb's wife. This is the church built upon the rock. And the members of this church don't all worship God in the same way or use the same form of church government or agree on matters non-essential to salvation, but they all worship with one heart. They're all led by the same Spirit and they all are really and truly holy. This is the church to which all true visible churches belong and serve, whether they're Presbyterians, Methodists, Baptists, Bible churches. All true believers in visible churches serve the greater interest of the one true church. And to the true church, this mystical body of all true believers belongs all the Lord's precious promises of protection, preservation, and final glory. And so even though the true church may be small and despised in the eyes of the unbelieving world, I can assure you this morning that it is precious in the eyes of God. And we learn from this verse that it's built upon the rock. But until a man or a woman is born again and made a new creation in Christ, they're not members of the true church. They may visit a local church. They may even attend a local church. But that doesn't mean they're uh, part of the, the true church. And so we need to understand what the true church is. Because misunderstanding what the true church is could mean that someone misunderstands what it is to be a Christian. I mean, if you think that the church is merely a denomination, a building, or a service you attend, you might also think that joining a church and coming to the building to attend the services would also mean that you're a Christian. But belonging to a church, being a member of a church, can no more make someone a Christian than owning a guitar can make someone a musician. And just because someone belongs to a church or attends church, again, it doesn't mean they belong to the true church. It doesn't mean that they are a member of the body of Christ. 
Because you become a member of the true church, the body of Christ, when you turn to God from sin, put your faith and trust in Christ alone as Lord and Savior. And so it is eternally important that we know what it is to be a member of the true church, the body of Christ. The true church is a building, not a material building made with hands, but rather a spiritual building, a holy temple, a a dwelling place of God by the Spirit made up of all true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, as Peter said in uh, 1 Peter 2.5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Secondly, we see the verse not only speaks about a building, but it also speaks about a builder. We notice in the verse that the Lord Jesus declares, I will build my church. The true church of Jesus Christ is tenderly cared for by all three persons of the Trinity. I mean, God the Father, God the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit, all cooperate in the salvation of believers. But there is a special sense in which the help of the church is the responsibility of the Lord Jesus. He is the Redeemer and Savior. Therefore, he says, I will build. And this work of building the church is his special work. Christ is the master builder. It is Jesus who calls the members of his church. According to Romans 1.6, they are called to belong to Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who gives them life. John 5.21 says the Son gives life to whom he will. It is Jesus who washes away their sins. It is Jesus who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, Revelation 1.5. It is Jesus who gives them peace. Peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you, John 14, 27. It is Jesus who gives them eternal life. He said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, John 10, 28. It is Jesus who grants them repentance, Acts 5, 31. God has exalted him, Christ, at his right hand to be leader or prince and savior. Why? To give repentance. It is Jesus who enables them to become God's children. In John 1.12 we read, But to all who did receive Him, what does that mean? Who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. It is Jesus who carries on the work within them once it begins. Philippians 1.6, Paul said, For I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Hebrews 12.2 From Him, every joint and member of the body of Christ is supplied. Through Him, we are strengthened for service. By Him, we are kept from falling. He will keep us until the end and present us blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. Jude 24 Jesus Christ is all things. It is in Him that we live and move and have our being. He truly is the believers all in all. And Jesus carries out His work through the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who renews, awakens, convinces, convicts, leads to the cross, transforms, and takes out of the world person after person, adding them to the true church. Jesus works through the Holy Spirit, but the great builder, the one who has taken upon Himself the work of our redemption and who will bring it to completion is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Word made flesh. It is Jesus Christ who builds His church. 
in building His church, it's comforting to know that that Jesus condescends to use many different instruments and, and many different methods. But He is the one who orders, guides, and directs all that is done. As one man said, what the sun is to the whole solar system, that Christ is to all the members of the true church. And so the Apostle Paul may plant, Apollos may water, but it is God who gives the increase. Pastors may preach and teach, commentators may commentate, and and writers may write, but the Lord Jesus Christ alone can build, or the work will stand still. As the psalmist said, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Jesus builds his church and his work, and it's always done at the right time in the right way. I mean, every living stone is put in just the right place. And in choosing those living stones, sometimes he chooses big stones and and great stones. Other times he chooses small stones. Sometimes the work moves fast. Sometimes it moves slowly. Other times it, it, it doesn't seem to move at all. And we're often impatient, aren't we? And we think that nothing is happening, but you see, our time isn't God's time. And we should understand the Lord Jesus makes no mistakes. He knows exactly what He is doing. I mean, He sees the end from the beginning. He works by a perfect, unchangeable plan. In building His church, Jesus often chooses and and uses some pretty rough stones. The most unlikely and, and apparently unqualified people. Yet Jesus chooses them and and shapes them into just the right stone for the job. You see, Jesus despises no one. He doesn't reject anyone because of their former life and their past sins, because he delights, the Bible says, to show mercy. It was C.T. Studd, the great missionary, who said, Despise not men nor things, no matter how weak or small. Because God loves to choose and mightily use what men count nothing at all. And so God often takes the the most ungodly, the roughest stones, and transforms them into polished stones for use in building His church. And though there is opposition from the world, the flesh, and the devil, the Lord Jesus displays His awesome power in building His church. I mean, through storms, trials, tribulation, and persecution, he, he silently, quietly, without excitement and fanfare, just continues building his church. And thank God the, the building of the one true church is done by the Lord Jesus. I mean, thank God that building the church is not the responsibility of man. Thank God that it doesn't depend on pastors, missionaries, committees, or programs. Jesus is the builder. And he will continue his work. Though Christians and and churches often don't know their responsibilities, Jesus will never fail. All that he has begun, he will certainly accomplish. And it is Jesus who builds his church. And so then you're thinking, well, pastor, are you saying that we're just passive in all of this? We just sit back and do nothing? No, I'm not saying that at all. The sovereignty of God is never an excuse for passivity or lack of responsibility. And unfortunately, it's used that way very much in this day. 
No, we're not passive. We're very active in all of this. God works through means. He works through human beings. And so we are to live our lives in such a way as to adorn the gospel, according to Paul and Titus. And then as believers, we're to share the gospel as we have opportunity. We invite people to church. We pray for the lost. But we have to keep in mind it is Christ who adds them to the church, the true church, because He is the great master builder of the church. And it's the Lord who adds to the church daily such as are being saved. Third, we see the foundation that Jesus builds His church upon. Looking back at the verse, you'll notice Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church. Well, what did Jesus mean when He said, on this rock I will build my church? Who or what was the rock or the foundation uh, he would build his church upon? And was he referring to Peter, who he was speaking to at that time? No, he wasn't speaking to Peter. It wasn't Peter. But rather the truth which the Father had just revealed to Peter, that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus himself is the rock the promised Messiah, the promised Savior, the mediator between God and man. In Acts 4, 11 and 12, we read, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In 1 Corinthians 3.11, Paul wrote, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the rock. He is the foundation on which the true church is being built. No other foundation but this could have held the weight of our sins. No other foundation could have met all that was required to save a world of lost sinners. The true church and therefore every true believer are built upon the solid rock foundation of Jesus Christ. Now, during a building project, the stones which are used for building can be just lying around loose. You know, they can be in piles near a foundation, but, but not joined to it, not, not in it, not a part of it. And so the question for us this morning is, are we members of the one true church? You know, are we built upon the rock? Are we those living stones that have been joined to the solid foundation of Jesus Christ. You can come to the church and take part in corporate worship and and that can be seen. Everybody can see that. that. That can be seen. But what cannot be seen with human eyes is whether you're really built upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ. And you can come and take communion and, and that too can be seen. But we can't see whether you're you're truly with Christ and and Christ is in in you. But one day, it, it will all come to light. One day, it will all be exposed. And so let me ask you, what is your faith founded upon this morning? Is it religious rituals and practices? Is it biblical knowledge? Is it a list of Do's and don'ts, mostly don'ts? Or is it Jesus Christ, the solid rock? 
Loved ones, we have to make sure that our faith is founded upon the rock, Jesus Christ. And we must make sure that we are in Christ and that Christ is in us. Jesus Christ is not only the builder of the church, he's also the foundation of the church. And next we see that Jesus speaks of the trials and adversity of the church. And that is implied here in the text. Look back at the verse and notice Jesus said, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So here Jesus mentions the gates of hell. And there's some question as to what this means. There is disagreement between uh, conservative commentators. One view is that the gate was the place where the rulers of ancient cities met, and, and therefore the gates of hell symbolizes the place where Satan and his fallen angels take counsel against the church. That's one possibility. Another view says that uh, the phrase gates of hell is, is a Jewish phrase referring to death. It's one or the other. We put the two together, put the two thoughts together. We conclude then that, that Christ has promised that all the forces of evil and destruction, even death, the ultimate weapon of Satan, have no power to stop the church. And we know the the history of the true church has always been one of conflict, persecution, and war. The true church has been constantly attacked by a deadly enemy, Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the, the god of this world. Because Satan hates the true church of Jesus Christ with an undying hatred. He hates the church. And he's always stirring up opposition against all those who belong to the church. Satan is always influencing the unbelievers of this world to do his will and and oppose and harass the people of God. And so if he can't rob believers of heaven, he'll do all that he can to harass us and, and irritate us and just aggravate us as we travel on our way to heaven. I mean, for thousands of years, this hostility has gone on. Millions of unbelievers have acted as Satan's agents and done the devil's work, though they didn't know it because they were nothing more than helpless pawns. And the Pharaohs, the Herods, the Neros, the the Diocletians, the Hitlers, the Stalins, and, and the Islamic faith were Satan's tools when they persecuted the followers of Jesus Christ. And spiritual warfare with the powers of hell has been the experience of the whole body of Christ. Invisible churches have had their times of prosperity and and seasons of peace, but there has never been a time of peace for the true church throughout the world. Because as long as we are in this sin-tainted world, the battle will never end. Spiritual warfare with the powers of hell is the experience of every individual member of the true church. Each of us has to fight. I mean, look at the lives of the saints down through history. I mean, sometimes they've, they've been attacked through gossip and slander, sometimes by open persecution. Sometimes they've been physically attacked, and, and sometimes their property's been confiscated or destroyed. It goes on all the time. In one way or another, the devil has been constantly warring against the true church and its members. I mean, the powers of hell have been constantly and continually attacking God's people. 
But you see, as believers, we are assured of the exceeding great and and precious promises of God. We're assured of of the peace of God which passes all understanding. Mercy, grace, and salvation are offered to everyone who turned to Christ and believed in Him. But we are not promised peace with the world or with the devil. In fact, we are promised just the opposite. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. John 15.20, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul told Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. As long as we are in this body, there will be spiritual warfare. That is why the Apostle Paul instructs us in Ephesians 6, 12 to 13, or 11 to 13, to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, he said, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And as long as we are in this body, there's going to be spiritual warfare. The Christian life is a battleground. We are engaged in a spiritual battle. And that is why we must count the cost. There is a price to be paid if we follow Jesus Christ. Salvation is given us freely by God's grace. But we have to count the cost of following Jesus Christ. Salvation is free. Living the Christian life is costly. It could cost you everything. And as long as we are in this world, we can expect to be opposed and attacked and some even martyred. And as long as the world is, is the world and the devil, the devil, there's going to be adversity and opposition. Jesus said in John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You say, well, the world doesn't hate me. Well, maybe they don't know you're a Christian. Maybe the way you live isn't any different from them. Maybe the way you talk, the way you act, the things you do is no different from anyone else in the world. So why would they ever think that you're a Christian? The world hated Jesus and the world will hate true Christians. Why? Because everything we, we, we love and believe is diametrically opposed to all that the world stands for. All of us who belong to the true church of Jesus Christ must be prepared for the hostility of the world and the devil. We must put on the whole armor of God and then pray. Because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual. And loved ones, they have been tried and tested by millions of poor sinners just like ourselves, and they have never once failed. But although we can expect a spiritual battle, we shouldn't be discouraged or depressed. You're thinking, well, I am. I'm really discouraged at this point. Well, we shouldn't be. Because Jesus told us this was going to happen. 
And if we lived according to the word, we'd understand these things. If we were men of the word, we would be like the men of Issachar who came to King David. It says that they were men who were understanding of the times and knew what Israel should do. If we were men and women really of the word, then none of these things should surprise us. Because Scripture has informed us. Jesus has warned us. Paul has warned us. We can expect a spiritual battle, but we shouldn't be discouraged or depressed. Why? Because Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then back in that verse, John 16, where Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation." The rest of the verse said, be of good cheer or take heart. Why? Because I have overcome the world, he said. So if this morning you're experiencing the opposition and assault of the enemy, then let me encourage you to put on the whole armor of God and, and pray and be patient because it is all working for your good and God's glory. When we experience adversity, It keeps us awake and alert. It makes us humble. And it drives us closer to the Lord Jesus. It is prosperity that has been the biggest curse on the church in this country. The people of God have never thrived under prosperity. Because they forget God. They forget where the blessings come from. And they begin to think they did it on their own. And so it's all theirs to do with whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want. So the Lord has to bring then adversity to jerk us back to reality. Because when we experience adversity again, it keeps us awake and alert, it makes us humble, and it drives us closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. At least that's what it does for a true believer. It weans us from the world. And it helps us to pray more. And above all, it makes us long for heaven. And it makes us say with our hearts as well as our mouths, come quickly, come quickly, Lord Jesus. The fifth thing we see in this verse is the security of the true church. In this verse in Matthew, and An awesome promise is given to us by the Lord Jesus, the great builder of the church. I mean, look with me again at the verse. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here the Lord Jesus, who cannot lie, declares that all the powers of hell will never overthrow his church. Isn't that good news? The true church is going to continue to stand despite every attack against it, and it's never going to be overthrown. I mean, all other created things are going to perish and pass away, but not the church of the living Christ. Nothing will prevail against the church that Jesus builds. I mean, great empires have have risen and fallen in rapid succession. You know, the the Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire, the United States is, 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 is falling much quicker than either one of those empires. So empires have risen and fallen in rapid succession as as the creations of man's efforts, they have all passed from the scene, yet the true church lives on. There have been visible churches in history that have passed from the scene. 
in the church of Corinth, the Philippian and Colossian churches? Where are they today? Well, they departed from teaching the Word of God. And they gloried in something other than the cross of Jesus Christ. And they didn't hold fast to the gospel of Christ. And they didn't give Jesus His rightful place. And so now, they are among the things that have been. Because their candlestick has been taken away. But all this time, the true church has lived on. And when the true church was oppressed and persecuted in one country, it fled to another. When it was trampled in one place, it took root in another. Fines and penalties, prisons, persecutions, and the sword, they have never been able to destroy the life of the true church. I mean, those who have persecuted the church have died and gone to their own place, but the Word of God has lived and grown and multiplied. As weak as the true church may appear to be in the eyes of men, it is in the words of one old preacher, an anvil which has broken many a hammer in times past and perhaps will break many more before the end. He that lays hands on it is touching the apple of God's eye. The Lord's promise in this verse is true of the entire body of Christ, the true church. Jesus will never be without a witness in this world. He has always had a people, even in the worst of times. He had 7,000 in Israel in the days of of Ahab. And now in the darkest places in the world today, there are those who, in spite of weakness and, and horrible persecution, are serving Jesus Christ faithfully. I mean, in some countries of the world today, many of them Muslim, the devil vents his rage on the true church. Those precious believers may be brought very, very low, but the power of hell will never entirely prevail. And individual believers in the, in the church, true church, may be so hounded and, and persecuted that they despair for their very lives. In fact, they may very well lose their lives for Christ's sake. Let me read you something. It's from uh, Thomas Brooks' Crown and Glory of Christianity, written in 1662. Let me read you a brief sample of the sufferings of some of the early Christians of whom he says the world was not worthy. In the reign of Hadrian the emperor, there there were 10,000 Christians crowned with a crown of thorns, thrust into the sides with sharp lances, and then crucified. Others were so whipped that their entrails were seen And afterwards they were thrown upon sharp shells and then upon sharp nails and thorns. And after all this cruelty, they were thrown to wild beasts to be devoured. Multitudes were banished. Others were pulled apart with wild horses. Some were beaten and racked with bars of iron. Others were cast into loathsome dungeons. Some were burnt in the fire. Others were knocked down and had their brains beaten out with staves and clubs. Some were pricked in their faces and eyes with sharp reeds. Others were stoned to death with stones, as Stephen was. Some were dashed in pieces against millstones. Others had their teeth dashed out of their jaws and their joints broken. Some were cast down from very high places. Others were beheaded. Some were tormented with razors. Others were slain with the sword. Some were run through with pikes. Others were driven into the wilderness where they wandered up and down, suffering hunger and cold, and where they were exposed to the fury both of wild beasts and also to the rage of the barbarous Arabians. Some fled into caves, which their persecutors crammed up with stones, and there they died. Others were trodden to death by the people. 
Some were hanged on gibbets with a slow fire under them. Others were cast into the sea and drowned. Some were slain by being thrown in mines. Others were hanged by the feet and choked with the smoke of a small fire, their legs being first broken. Some were covered with oil and then roasted with a soft fire. Others were hung by one hand that they might feel the weight of their whole bodies scorching and broiling over burning coals. Some were shot through with arrows and afterwards thrown into stinking prisons. Others were stripped stark naked and thrown out in cold frosty nights and burnt the next day. In Syria, a company of Christian virgins were stripped stark naked to be scorned by the multitude, then shaved and then torn in pieces and devoured by beasts. Lastly, he says, many women had their joints, had the joints of their bodies pulled from another and their flesh and sides clawed with talons of wild beasts to the bones and their breasts seared with torches until they died. Believers may be hounded, persecuted, and martyred. But even death, the ultimate weapon, has no power to stop the church. Death cannot hold the believer. Death has no power over the true church. The blood of the martyrs has always sped the growth of the church in size and spiritual power because the power of hell cannot stop or hold the church, or keep the church's members from getting safely home to heaven. As one man said, the true church is Christ's flock. Not a single lamb in Christ's flock shall perish. He will say to his father on the last day, I have not lost one of those you gave me. The true church is the wheat of the earth. It may be sifted, winnowed, buffeted, and tossed to and fro, but not one grain shall be lost. The tares and the chaff will be burned. The wheat shall be gathered into the barn. The true church is Christ's army. The captain of our salvation loses none of his soldiers. His plans are never defeated. His supplies never fail. His roll call is the same at the end as at the beginning. Not one of his soldiers shall be missing at last because he himself declares they shall never perish. The devil may cause some of the members of the true church to be thrown into prison. He may kill and torture them, but after he has killed the body, there is nothing more that he can do. One of the martyrs of the early church wrote on the wall of his Roman prison cell, Blessed Jesus, they cannot cast me out of your true church. And that is true. That is exactly right. According to the Lord Jesus himself, all the powers of hell cannot cast one single believer out of his true church. And the world may wage war against the church, but they cannot stop the word of God. During the time of the early church, a Roman, uh, the Roman emperor Julian, making a sarcastic reference to Jesus, said to a, a very elderly believer who was standing before him, he said, what, what is the carpenter's son doing now? To which the old believer replied, he is making a coffin for Julian himself. And interesting enough, interestingly enough, a few months later, Emperor Julian was killed in battle. You see, the work of the true church will go on even in the worst of times. Nothing, absolutely nothing, will ever prevail against it. So we're not to be afraid to serve Christ with all of our hearts. 
because he has all power in heaven and earth, and he will surely keep us. Family may oppose us. Friends and neighbors may mock us. The world may slander and persecute us. But loved ones, we don't have to be afraid. Because Christ promises that the powers of hell will not prevail against us. And loved ones, this has proven true for nearly 2,000 years now, and it will be true until the end of time. When one Christian witness is martyred, the Lord will raise up another, because Jesus is going to provide for his church. And though the battle may seem to be going well for the world and the devil, in reality, everything is going according to the Lord's plan. You see, our eyes just don't see it. In fact, our eyes don't want to see it. Because we have gotten so used to the cushy Christian life that we have in this country, the thought of persecution, we we just don't even want to think about that. But it's coming. If the Lord tarries, it's coming. And we need to be prepared for it. Why? Because the Bible tells us to be prepared. It warns us. And it encourages us. The Lord Jesus knows how to care for His church. And by His power and grace, the true church shall prevail. And as the Word of God says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Makes you want to stand up and sing Handel's Hallelujah Chorus, doesn't it? Well, in closing... I want to ask you whether you're a member of the one true church of Jesus Christ. In other words, do you have a personal relationship with Christ? Do you belong to the body of Christ, the one true church, by virtue of being born again? Have you by grace through faith turned to Christ, put your faith and trust in Him alone for salvation, thus being made a new creation by Him? And ask yourself these questions this morning and and think them through. Because this is the most serious issue in all of life. This is the issue. And to anyone here this morning who is not a believer, what I'm asking you is to join the one true church. I'm not asking you to join Calvary Bible Church or any other local church. I'm asking you to come to Jesus Christ that you might be saved and be immersed into His body and become a member of the one true church, the the, the bride of Christ. And so why not this morning? Why not this morning? If you're not a believer, I'm, I'm, I'm calling you to come to Christ. To turn from the direction you're headed and to come to Christ and to put your faith and trust in Him alone for salvation because He is your only hope. So I'm asking you to come to Christ. Come to Him. Because His mercy and grace are ready for you. Heaven is ready for you. Angels are ready to rejoice over you. Christ is ready to receive you and pour out His love upon you. And Jesus will gladly receive, forgive, receive, and welcome you into his family. 
And so again, I'm asking you to come to Christ this morning and to surrender your life to Him. And if you will come, Christ will receive you because the Bible says the one who comes to Him, He will not cast out. And so I invite you to come to Jesus Christ this morning. Turn. Turn from your sin. Put your faith and trust in Him alone for salvation. And for believers here this morning, may the Lord help us to live holy lives. May we walk worthy of the church to which we belong, speaking of the universal church, the body of Christ. May we walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord. May we be living epistles of Christ, known and read of all men, you know, written in such clear letters that no one can say they don't know whether we're Christians or not. May we live courageous lives, always sharing with others the hope that is within us. Why should we be ashamed of Jesus? Why should we be ashamed of Him? He wasn't ashamed of us on the cross. Loved ones, may we be bold. Very bold and courageous for Christ. And the good soldier is not ashamed of his uniform. And the true believer should never be ashamed of Jesus. And then lastly, loved ones, those of you who are believers, live a joyful life. Live like men and women who look for that blessed hope, the second coming of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because He is coming. He's coming again. There's a glorious time coming for all believers, and that thought should fill our minds. But we've gotten so used to loving this world and the things of the world, we don't want to depart from it. The fact of heaven ought to to just fill our hearts and minds and encourage us, and we should be looking for the coming of Christ and living like He could come at any moment, because He can. So there's a glorious time coming for all believers, but there's a bad time coming for the unbeliever. There is a horrible time coming for those who live for their own lusts and desires and turn their backs on the Lord, rejecting Him and His gracious offer of salvation. But there is a glorious time coming for all true believers because our best life is yet to come. And for that time, we need to wait, we need to watch, and we need to pray. The Lord Jesus Christ, the great master builder of the church, is coming. And personally, I believe that he could come very soon. He may not, but he could. And when he does, well, what a day that's going to be. The Savior and all of the saved are going to rejoice together, and the whole universe will have to acknowledge that in building his church, he has done all things. He has done all things well. Let's stand and pray.
On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org. calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. It's your love.